Welcome, everybody. Uh, we're starting a new panel, and this is not a new day. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I want you to know is people keep referring to 1929. All of you know what that is, right? Yeah. It's also my birth date. <laughs> so I'm worn out. <laughs> um, and I'll repeat how happy we are to be working with the Atlantic Council and how successful I think it's been so far until uh, I take over. Um, and uh, I want you to know that the blues that don't blend is not deliberate. We, uh, this is by chance, and it was all Iris's fault. She went and got the wrong color blue. <laughs> but anyway, um, good to have you here. I'm, um, all of us know more or less what we're going to say. Nobody's going to agree with me on what I wanted them to say. But basically, we've outlined this panel around two themes. One is uh, each of the speakers will have something to say about the internal dynamics. Uh, the French ambassador will talk about Europe, uh, how it's reacting. Uh, Ali will talk about, um, about Iran's situation and what the dynamics are there. Frank will talk about the American dynamics, and, and Suzanne will talk about uh, the implications for U.S.-Iran relations. And then each of them will also address a global question um, in the region, how all of this affects, uh, how the implementation will affect, uh, could affect, uh, the dynamics uh, that are developing in the Middle East. Uh, since all of them are experts in that region. Um, I, uh, I just want to say, Ambassador, that uh, there's nobody here in this audience who doesn't share the grief, the sadness, and the, uh, and the, uh, the horror that took place in Paris. But I don't think any of us also can forget the fact that within two weeks, you, your government hosted one of the most important uh, international agreements um, ever ever met, ever reached. And uh, Paris deserves a status now that it's always deserved as having been present at the creation of a new era and how we think about our globe. So good to have you here. So why don't you begin to tell us how Europeans are looking at this and, and then maybe have something to say since you know so much about the region, uh, uh, how you think this might impact on the current negotiations with regard to Syria. No, for, for, so first, thank you very much for, for your kind words. And uh, uh, it's true that we have been moved by uh, the reactions of the Americans to, to the attacks in Paris. It has been an incredible outpouring of solidarity and towards the French, and, and we are very, very grateful to it. Um, first, I, I simply I, I want to, to remind this audience uh, that the negotiation was launched in 2003 by the free Europeans. It was the Europeans uh, who really uh, approached the Iranians. Why the Europeans? Because it was 2003, and it was a time uh, where uh, basically when the Americans uh, simply couldn't, uh, because of political, ideological reasons, couldn't engage themselves, the Iranians. At the time, I was the Assistant Secretary for Strategic Affairs in Paris, and my interlocutor was John Bolton, 
So, uh, in a sense, you can understand uh, that uh, the Americans at the time were not really ready to engage the Iranians. Nevertheless, I, I really I remember that I presented uh, to John the letter that the free ministers were going to send, and we presented to the, to the Israelis also, to Jeremy Sacharov, who was the, my interlocutor. And from the Americans and the Israelis, we got not a green light, but a, a yellow light. And from the beginning, from the European point of view, we knew that if there would be an agreement, it would be an agreement with the Americans on board. Uh, whatever we want, in a sense, we were trying to, to open a channel to the Iranians uh, and in the hope that sooner or later the Americans uh, will, will join us. And we knew also from the beginning that eventually the negotiation, the agreement, if there was going to be an agreement, would be an agreement basically, first of all, in a sense, between the US and Iran, uh, because the relationship between the two countries uh, was, in a sense, so toxic uh, because of history. Uh, it was not only a negotiation about an Iranian issue, it was uh, the simple fact of Americans and Iranians negotiating was in, it, in itself uh, was uh, something extremely, uh, extremely uh, important, knowing the fascination, the passion, uh, which was separating and joining, actually, uh, the, two, the two countries. So the negotiations, eventually the Americans, Russians and, and Chinese joined us in 2006, and, and we, after a long, long trip, uh, uh, we have this agreement. Uh, we, we were convinced uh, that the, the, the Iranians will do their best uh, to get the lifting of the sanctions, which means that they'll do their best to implement the joint, the joint plan. And what we are seeing now, right now, is that Iranians are doing it. You know, uh, we have uh, had the report of the, agence, the Vienna Agency on the, on the military dimension. Uh, the Iranians are, are start, starting to dismantle uh, the ultra centrifuges. Uh, the Iranians are preparing to, uh, to ship their uh, HEU, uh, their HEU. Uh, it's, it's indeed the interest of Iran uh, that the implementation day takes, takes place as soon as possible. So, in a way, I should say so far, so good. Very often, I, I am asked the question saying, well, yes, but look at what they are doing uh, in Syria or, or in Yemen. I think from the beginning, we have separated the negotiation, the Iranian nuclear negotiation from the other issues. And we have been very keen on doing it because we didn't want to have a sort of big agreement where we would actually get um, uh, concessions on Yemen in exchange of more ultra-centrifuges uh, on the nuclear issue. We had to handle the nuclear issue on its own merit. So for us, the nuclear issue, the, resolution, the, the joint plan, the resolution 2231 should be read, you know, in, in a sense, in isolation from the rest. And all the more because we were convinced, on the, the French, we were convinced that, in a sense, uh, uh, what will happen after, just after the signature of the agreement would be, in a sense, a worsening of the Iranian behavior. Uh, there will be a hardening of the Iranian behavior because, uh, uh, because for the, the regime uh, had to show that it didn't surrender to the Americans. Uh, it has to send the signals to the signal to the radicals. The problem of the relationship between the US and Iran 
It's also an Iranian domestic issue. The anti-Americanism is the last marker, ideological marker, of the Iranian revolution. Normalizing with the Americans, it's the end of the revolution. So in a sense, the, Amer the regime is obliged to send the signals to the world, to its radicals, to its population, which is largely dreaming of a normalization with the Americans, simply to say, no way, we are still there and we are going to keep, to keep the power. So to, I, I, I will stop here, uh, uh, but I think that unfortunately, I think we should read the two issues, at least on the short term. I'm not sure that in six months, two years, three years, five years, uh, uh, the implementation of the nuclear issue won't have a, con uh, a consequence on the domestic situation in Iran. But I think that on the short run, I think it's, we don't expect to have a, 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 a real uh, consequence on the, the other issues, uh, and especially the regional issues. Prerogative and ask you a couple of questions uh, right now. Uh, first, um, you, as I was telling you beforehand, were a critical player in, I think, getting the Democratic Senate to vote uh, the way they did in support of this uh, JCPOA. And um, because you went with your colleagues from the other P5 plus one to testify before, to meet with 24 Democrats. And uh, Senator Gillibrand asked you each, tell us what you would do if um, the Senate and the Congress said, We're, we want to go back for a better deal. And each of you made the case for how that wasn't going to happen. How would the Europeans react to some act on the part of the United States which would I think uh, the, reverse this agreement? I think the spokesperson of the State Department would say, I don't answer to hypothetical questions. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to be but frank. I heard I, you answer that day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really. Uh, I, I really don't know because, in a sense, we are not in this prospect now. You know, the, the, the agreement is implemented. The Americans are uh, are on board. So I, I really, nevertheless, I, I think there is an issue uh, that, in a very strange way, has just reappeared through the visa waiver question. I think you are maybe aware of it that the, 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 uh, after the, 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 the terrorist attacks in Europe, uh, in a sense, with some good reasons, um, the, the House and the Senate, actually, have decided to uh, modify the regime of the visa, the visa waiver that the Europeans are enjoying. And especially saying that the people who declare they have gone to Syria and Iran will be denied the visa, wa the visa waiver and who need a, 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 a visa to enter the US. And uh, uh, frankly, the problem first, in terms of security, if you are a terrorist, you are not going to write down in your ESTA application, actually, I went to Syria and Iran. But I, I never criticized the, uh, the host nation. Uh, but the problem is for the Iranians, for the Iran. Because frankly, first, the terrorist attacks you know, in, in, in Paris or in Europe are not linked in any way to Iran, but it means that if you are a, an European businessman, if you go to Iran, you need, after that, a visa to come to the US. 
you may know that to get an American visa, it takes months. Uh, of course, you are not going to, it's, you know, I went and I met uh, senators, and it was a tough sell to try to say you have to allow French, uh, French businessmen to make money in Iran uh, on, on the hill. But nevertheless, the Iranians are incensed, and, to a po and they have a point. Because the, a part of the deal on our side is a normalization of trade, is the lifting of sanctions. So the possibility for tr having trade relationship between Iran and the countries which want to have trade relationship with Iran. The Americans, for their own reasons, have decided not to, because they, they are keeping some sanctions. But if the Europeans, the European businessmen, uh, you know, are, are, are saying, oh, we can't go to Iran, on the point two, on, on this issue, which is important, the issue of the banks. Because now, you know, the banks, after all the, 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 the fines which have been imposed on the banks, billions of dollars, now you can say the European banks are in overcompliance, which means they are so terrified that a district attorney in New York would inflict them billions of dollars that they are not going to Iran. You know, really, I, I met several CEOs of banks, of European banks, and I told them, I said, what are you going to do in Iran? The answer is clear, nothing. So it means also that for, for the trade, you need banks. <laughs> you know, so, so we could have a problem that the Iranians could come to us and saying, wait a minute, you are not holding your part of the, of the deal. Thank you, Ambassador. Those are very helpful. I'm going to ask Frank Wisner, who probably one of our great authorities on the Middle East, uh, but also in American politics, to tell us uh, how this is sitting here in our country and, and what do you think the implications are for the Middle East? Well, <clears throat> Bill, first of all, let me express also my thanks not only to you uh, for uh, being on your uh, part of your team now for so many years, but Fred as well for the hospitality of the Atlantic Council today. Fred. Absolutely terrific. Thank you. Uh, most grateful to you and to the attendance of everyone. I said today. very nice things about the Atlantic Council before you came in. <laughs> and I noticed and Frank. Intend to, Fred didn't pass I mean, to continue Tom didn't to pass do it that. Off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great, Fred. Um, Bill, as I sat down and thinking about coming and being with all of you today, my mind went back and reminded myself of why it has been so such an important feature of my life to be involved in the pursuit of the JCPOA and why getting an agreement with Iran has been a defining moment in my own view of the world. It was really two reasons. The first we've talked about intensely today, and that is to make certain that there never was a risk that Iran would have a nuclear weapon and that we, the United States, would be driven once again to war in the Middle East after the experience of recent years. Um, and I think we can see our way forward, even though I categorically reject the fact that this will give Jim Walsh any reason not to continue <laughs> to appear on panels before this audience. But the second reason is that I believed in finding common ground with Iran on this highly important issue. We would 
begin to address the strategic imperative of the region of how to begin to get our hands around the <clears throat> balance of power of the emerging nations of the region, a balance that would give the United States an opportunity to pursue its most important geostrategic interests. I look back to 2011 and the outbreak of the events of what now is euphemistically, increasingly euphemistically called the Arab Spring, and I recognize what chaos, the disastrous consequences of the chaos that is swept over this region for it, for the world at large, and particularly for the United States. And I stand back and look at the region and say to myself, whatever your objective is, you have to accept the fact that resetting some degree of regional order has got to be a priority. Whether that objective is to end violence, to restore democratic opportunities, to stabilize threatened states like Jordan or Lebanon, whether it's to secure, as I believe it is potentially important that an understanding with Iran do secure the interests of the state of Israel, whatever your objectives are, it is important that we take and look at the question of regional order and set our minds to how to deal with it, whatever the objective, or simply dealing with the horrible tragedy that people of the region suffer today and those who are fleeing it, undermining the social fabric and stability of our friends in Europe. So as I look at this region, I recognize that whatever our pretensions might have been or others might have thought it, there aren't any hegemons left. There are only major nations whose interests have to be taken into account if you're going to see your way forward to the construction of, an, of a regional order. And here is where I start and why Iran is so important to me. For I recognize if regional powers are not accommodated in a structure for the region, then the region will be destroyed by the proxy wars that we have seen engulf it. Those <clears throat> you, have to, you have to face Iran. Iran is an ancient power, a power with major interests throughout this region. Iran is a nation that, whose voice must be heard and will be heard. But we ask ourselves what kind of Iran we're going to talk to. Is it an Iran that's immediately obvious to it, or is it Henry Kissinger's much-feared hegemonistic Iran with uh, ancient imperial pretensions or Shia revolutionary pretensions, or is it a more thuggish Iran that wants to force its hand on the region along the lines of, of the much-touted Al-Quds force, or is it a more accommodating, uh, more subtle, and more liberal Iran that we'd like to think we see in the Rouhani regime. I don't think we know the answer, for Iran is a nation in movement, a nation that is divided, 
a nation that's in evolution. But we know that we have to deal with this Iran, just as we have to deal with every other nation in the region that if we don't have a structure that involves Iran and Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Europe ourselves in Russia, there won't be those controlling points in which the real issues that tear apart the region's order can be addressed, that the rules of the road can be addressed, that a modus vivendi can begin to be designed, a way in which the region comes to live with itself again. So what are we up against? And where does Iran fit in? Today, we face serious problems in Syria, in Iraq, but we also face problems in Yemen, Libya, not to mention Lebanon. Syria, tomorrow we will see a re-engagement along the lines that has already started in Vienna in past meetings, and the secretary comes back from Moscow over the weekend to look at a discussion of Syria's future in which the powers that I have mentioned are talking about a transition in Syria, a transition to a constitutional order that would at some point replace the current regime in Syria and put into place a more consensual regime and bring about a military effort, the purpose of which would be the destruction of radical Islam, Islamic forces, notably ISIS. In Iraq, in a similar manner, a more inclusive federal system uh, designed to strengthen a Sunni Iraq and bring it into a balance with <coughs> the Kurds and the Shia. But go beyond that, uh, other frameworks, the UN is beginning talks over Yemen, will be very important. Heart of all of these will be a resolution of Iran's differences or addressing Iran's differences with Saudi Arabia. So I see a balance that could begin to emerge, but I recognize the huge difficulties that lie ahead. In Syria, we haven't begun to figure out really how the Assad problem will be dealt with, or how the Syrian opposition will be brought together, or how a common war effort would be mounted against ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra. So the obstacles are there, but if you don't start with a balance among the great nations of the region of which Iran is key, you can go literally nowhere. The ambassador made a key point. He said, it won't be step, we won't step out and hold hands with the Iranians in the first instance. Iran will have to, in the wake of the nuclear understanding, back away from the United States. So we're in a long game of having to find a common approach with Iran. It will take a while. But inherent in reaching out to Iran is a different posture for the United States over time in the Middle East, one in which we have a balance of interests and find accommodation with other powers to seek stability and a fresh round of order. And that is the will be, in addition to the nuclear outcome, 
the great payoff of American diplomacy. Is, is there anybody who has ever heard Frank Wisner think he could do any better than that? <laughs> uh, Frank really has, has a way of wrapping things up. And it isn't that he wings it, he thinks it through, and he, as we know, he does. Um, maybe I'll call on Suzanne. Uh, Suzanne DiMaggio, who has been with us from the very close pal from going back in 2001, <laughs> 2002 when we worked together to start this whole effort. She's, she's played a, a major role, not a public role, but a major role behind the scenes in bringing about uh, a lot of, of, moving through a lot of the difficult phases that we, that the U.S. government in Iran faced. Suzanne, well, thank tell us you, a little Bill. about the domestic. Before know. I get to that, let me thank you and Iris and everyone associated with the Iran Project for organizing this, and then, of course, Barbara and all your colleagues here at the uh, Atlantic Council. It's a real pleasure to be here and an honor to be on this panel with all of you. Um, so um, the coming year in U.S.-Iran relations and how this agreement will play out, I mean, inevitably, it is going to be a series of ups and downs and setbacks, uh, some major ones, some minor ones, uh, and some blips. We have two uh, very current examples right now that I think um, illustrate this point. We heard about it earlier in several of the presentations, uh, this uh, medium-range missile that Iran tested in October. A UN panel has declared that it is in violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Um, and now we saw yesterday, I believe, or a couple of days ago, dozens of senators here in this town have called on President Barack Obama to not lift the sanctions on Iran and or place new sanctions on Iran. Um, at the same time, this modification to the visa waiver program, uh, my understanding, so this is the bill that will exclude anyone who has traveled, and my understanding, it doesn't specifically mention Iran, but it says traveled to a country that uh, engages in state-sponsored terrorism. So by implication, of course, it means Iran. Um, so anyone who's traveled uh, excludes them from the visa-free travel system that covers uh, uh, most of the EU countries. Uh, so some European officials have already uh, said that um, this could be a breach of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Um, in Iran, we're hearing a lot of critiques about it. In fact, just yesterday, the Speaker of Iran's Parliament, Ali Larjani, said it is a violation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Um, so I think this is very illustrative of the kinds of bumps along the way that we are going to face. And I don't think this is going to stop post-implementation day. We shouldn't assume that the atmosphere will improve. In fact, let me just go through what's on the agenda, and you can see how politically contentious things could get. So on uh, February 26th uh, in Iran, there will be two major elections held simultaneously, uh, one for the parliament, the modulus, and one for the assembly of experts. 
uh, the assembly of experts will be particularly important this election year. Uh, this is the 86-member body that chooses uh, the next supreme leader. And by all accounts, given Hamane's current age, um, and this is a 10-year period, they serve a 10-year term, it's very likely that this particular body that's elected next will, in fact, pick the next leader, supreme leader of Iran. Um, so against this backdrop, we're already seeing the intensified political uh, struggles that are happening between factions, and we should only assume that that intensification will uh, continue and increase. And then, of course, um, in our country, uh, November 2016, we have a major election coming up ourselves. Um, so if any of you have watched any of the recent debates uh, on the GOP side, for sure, a number of candidates. We have no political position. No. No. Um, uh, a number of Republican candidates have said that if they're elected, they will rescind uh, the JCPOA. Um, and there's been a lot of tough talk on Iran. So the concern in Tehran is, um, look, if we go ahead and implement this deal, and a lot of what they're doing um, could be seen as somewhat irreversible, uh, their concern is what's to guarantee us that the next president of the United States will abide by this agreement. Um, so that is in the mix and causing uh, some agitation as well. And then, of course, in 2017, Iran will have an election for its presidential um, race. And uh, moderate President uh, Hossein uh, Rouhani, uh, Hassan Rouhani, already is under fierce attack uh, by those who are determined not to see him gain a second term. Um, so this is a very volatile mix of um, political uh, events on the agenda that will play into a what I think is an intensification of um, uh, possible uh, problems between the United States and Iran. Now, um, Bill had also asked me to talk about uh, how the bilateral relationship will bear up under the pressures of seeking some common bilateral um, uh, ground on policies in the region, and Frank just gave a majestic overview of what's on stakes. So I'm just going to be very brief on that. But of course, this makes the picture ever more complicated. The bottom line is the U.S. and Iran are going to be bumping up each other uh, to a great extent in the region. Um, if you look what's happening, uh, how the Syria talks go, as has been mentioned tomorrow, um, the Syria talks will continue in New York. Uh, Foreign Minister Zarif is already in New York. Uh, I believe um, I th at that time he may also have a bilateral with Secretary Kerry. Uh, some have noted that there might be some growing convergence between uh, Tehran and Washington and the administration on how to deal with the transition to a post-Assad government, but that clearly remains to be seen. In the case of Yemen, uh, there now appears to be a chance to end the civil war there. Uh, there are currently, as we speak, peace talks going on in Switzerland. Um, but 
Uh, I think the two-day-old ceasefire has already been violated something like 150 times uh, by last count. Uh, so that is, uh, it looks like, in turmoil. Um, a potential bright spot, uh, of course, the U.S. doesn't play a direct role here, but in Lebanon, um, there appears to be backing between the Saudis and Iran of a potential power-sharing agreement that will lead to, finally, the election of a president there. Uh, just, I think, yesterday or the day before, the Lebanese parliament failed for the 33rd time to elect a president. Uh, and they're going to try again in, uh, I believe, January or February um, to get that started again. And then, of course, uh, the fight against ISIS and Iraq. Uh, so now we see uh, the Iraqis gearing up um, to push deeper into Ramadi, uh, attempt to uh, retake the capital from ISIS in western Anbar province, um, which has been in the grip of ISIS fighters since May. Uh, then the goal, perhaps, after that would be to refocus on Mosul. Uh, so all of these issues, it's clear the United States and Iran, um, some more than others, but some play a direct, we play a direct role in, and others an indirect. But I think the rules of the road that Frank referred to, the modus vivendi that we need to get to, uh, clearly um, intersects at all these issues. And uh, on a I know I've been a lot of gloom and doom so far, a bit of a Debbie Downer, but on a uh, positive note, one of the key benefits of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and indeed the years of negotiations that led up to it, is now that Iranian and U.S. officials are finally talking. Um, now, the Supreme Leader has set a red line. Um, I think someone mentioned that this was expected, that there would be pushback after this agreement was reached. Uh, to rebalance um, the system uh, and not see as Iran capitulated to the United States. But the uh, Supreme Leader has now said that the Iranians and Americans can only talk about the nuclear issue bilaterally. And all the other issues will have to be dealt with in a multilateral context. Although not, not ideal, we'll take it. It at least gives us a um, opportunities to have discussions on, on these very important issues. So um, to conclude, uh, my main point is not a, um, uh, a surprising one. Unpredictability is going to reign. Uh, there are many factors to ensure that, at the same time, there are many factors to ensure that the JCPOA not only survives, but thrives. Uh, I'll just name two. The first first one is um, stating the obvious, and that is Iran must continue to comply with its obligations as it had did, has it's done with the interim nuclear agreement with this joint comprehensive plan of action. That's a given. Uh, but second, I think, given the backdrop that I just described, it will be all the more vital for the governments of the United States and Iran to maintain steady and reliable channels of communication, multiple channels of communications that are needed, given uh, what I just said about the Supreme Leader's um, red line of only talking about the nuclear issue. This will be difficult, but we see that it can be done. Um, 
we have heard from uh, Ambassador Mull just during lunchtime, and I think that process of communication has um, actually uh, come along quite nicely in a quick way. Uh, Ambassador Mull and his team uh, working very closely with uh, Dr. Arag Chi, his counterpart in Iran, and their team on these issues. Uh, so that's a positive. Uh, we learned recently that the head of Iran's atomic energy <coughs> institution, uh, Salahi, met with uh, Ernie Moniz in Oman. So those meetings are continuing to take place. That's very positive. On the sidelines uh, of the Syria talks, it's very likely that uh, Javad Zarif and Secretary Kerry will have chances to talk. My understanding is our um, respective ambassadors to the UN have a channel for discussion uh, that the uh, Treasury and Iran Central Bank does. So this is a step forward, but I think um, given the um, uh, minefields that exist, uh, this should be a priority to maintain these channels of communication and deepen and expand them to the extent possible. I'll stop there. Nice. Thank you. Suzanne. Uh, very few people know these issues better than Suzanne. She's been at it for so long. Not that long. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the probably best informed people I know and have met um, has been working on Iran issues now for, well, most of his life, but particularly as a journalist for the last uh, many years, decades. And, and he's now the top analyst for the International Crisis Group, uh, looked at by all of us as sort of the authority on what's going on inside Iran. And Ali, thank you for coming. Uh, Ali, Ali, thank you for coming for this, this visit. Yeah. Great pleasure. Thank you very much, Bill, for inviting me. It's a great honor to be here on this panel and at the Atlantic Council. Um, you asked me to talk about uh, two separate issues that are interrelated. One is how the deal has impacted uh, domestic politics in Iran and how uh, domestic politics will impact the implementation of the deal. Uh, my one-line answer to the first question is that the deal has exacerbated domestic infighting, which is likely uh, to get worse before it gets even worse. Um, and the reason is that the deal has come at a very sensitive time. As Suzanne already mentioned, there are uh, three important elections lined up for the next 18 months. Uh, in February, we have the elections of the Assembly of Experts and the Parliament. Uh, and uh, the following year, in 2017, in June, we have a presidential poll. Uh, and the stakes in all of these elections are very high. Um, if the balance of power in the Parliament tilts significantly in the interest of uh, President Rouhani and his pragmatist allies, he will be in a better position to challenge other power centers in the system. If the opposite happens, uh, in fact, uh, he might become a lame duck president for the remainder of his term. Uh, and Suzanne also noted the assembly of experts, uh, the incoming assembly of experts, can very well be the one that will choose Supreme Leader's successor. He's 76 years uh, old, and the, the new assembly will be in office for eight years. Um, but the stakes are even higher than this. This is not just about petty politics or uh, about uh, the spoils of the nuclear deal. 
this is about whose vision for the future of Islamic Republic will eventually prevail. A vision that wants Iran integrated in the global economy, uh, wants more pluralistic politics at home, or a vision that is very wary of these reforms, sees them as a parastroika that could unravel the entire system, and prefers self-sufficiency and controlled opening to the outside world uh, to uh, a complete integration in the global economy. Uh, and these differences are bound uh, to even deepen more as we go forward in implementation of this deal, uh, and especially with sanctions relief because sanctions relief is going to be very disruptive for an economy in which there's a lot of vested interest in the sanctions uh, economy, actually. This will threaten uh, uh, the interest of those who have uh, appropriated uh, uh, and monopolized a lot of trade channels. Uh, and it will pose serious questions about priorities, economic priorities of the country. Uh, and while there is broad agreement about um, very general policies, like uh, the 25-year economic vision for the country or the economy of resistance, that's the doctrine that the Supreme Leader has presented. There is absolutely no agreement on what this means in practice. So we are, uh, I think, uh, expected to see significant uh, infighting as we go forward uh, in implementing the deal. Um, and, and we actually, at this stage, we've already seen a domestic crackdown, a spate of arrests, um, and a very significant uh, anti-American backlash that my own prediction is will continue well beyond uh, the February 2016 elections uh, uh, and will go into 2017. Now, how will these dynamics uh, affect the implementation of the deal? Again, my one-line answer is that while it might delay the implementation of the deal, it is not going to derail it. Uh, and the reason is there is still a significant amount of consensus at the top of the political elite uh, around the grand strategy of Iran. And the grand strategy of Iran in these negotiations from the beginning was to get sanctions relief and make sure that if the deal fails, it's because of the other side's uh, 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 either inflexibility or uh, effort to undermine the agreement. Uh, we have already seen delays. The Supreme Leader, in fact, conditioned two of Iran's measures under JCPOA to IAEA effectively closing the PMD dossier, which happened uh, on the 15th of this month. Uh, and while ostensibly this was designed to make sure that Iran has enough leverage uh, uh, for this very important milestone, uh, but in fact, it has delayed the implementation uh, on the Iranian side. President Rouhani and his allies wanted to go even faster uh, than what we have seen. Uh, and there might be even more delays as we go forward. Uh, the, we saw hardliners uh, coming out complaining about this pace with which Iran was uh, uh, dismantling the centrifuges, and that resulted in a temporary uh, slowdown of uh, dismantlement uh, until Iranian officials came out and explained that they were actually just uninstalling the inactive centrifuges and not the ones that were spinning, and they would do that uh, towards the end of the process. Um, now, the durability of the consensus that I mentioned, I think, in large part, and at least in the short run, depends uh, on how much Iran is able to get the economic benefits 
uh, of this agreement. Uh, and I think any impediments there, uh, either uh, deliberate uh, by those who are seeking to undermine the agreement, or uh, technical snags, something on par of what we saw during the implementation of the interim agreement, uh, where there were some problems, could uh, weaken Iran's resolve uh, in, uh, in, com uh, in uh, implementing the deal. Uh, and as an Iranian uh, official told me, uh, this, this can easily, the process of quid pro quo that we have currently can easily turn into a process of tit for tat. Um, there's a very fine line there. Uh, and I'll end by noting that in this contentious con context that I explained, everything in President Rouhani's record shows that he's going to adopt an approach that is more cautious than audacious. And change will come to Iran much slower and much more gradual than many people would like to see. Now, this might tempt uh, a lot of people outside of Iran, especially in the West, to nudge him to move faster. Uh, but I think it's important to remember, and based on the record that we have uh, during the past three decades, there is no way to speed up the reform process in Iran and a million ways to undermine it. I'll stop. Fair enough. Um, Ambassador Rowe mentioned the possibility, the, the realization that this issue is about the revolution and about uh, a sort of fundamental view of, um, of where Iran is headed. Do you think it's that fundamental? I think it is fundamental. It is exactly because of the potential of this deal to be a transformational event that the guardians of the system are trying to make sure that it's only a narrow transaction. Uh, to borrow a word from the French uh, Revolution's calendar, uh, the fear is that this could be the thermidor uh, of the Iranian revolution. Uh, and uh, everything that we see points to the fact that the key power centers, with the exception of the executive branch, uh, are keen in making sure that their grip of, on power is maintained. <coughs> and in order to do that, they have to make sure that the consequences of this agreement are quite limited. In fact, I would argue that the future that the Supreme Leader has in mind very much looks like the past. The era before the nuclear crisis, in which Iran had significant trade with Europe, very good relations with Asia, uh, a fine-tuned level of enmity with the United States. So that we were not on the verge of confrontation uh, like we were in the past few years, and continued to support its allies uh, in the region. I think that's what he wants. He doesn't want uh, any kind of a rapprochement with, uh, with the United States or any kind of significant reorientation of Iran's uh, geostrategic position. You're, you're nodding, Ambassador. Yes, I, I am, yes. yes. Since he's saying he agrees with me, you know, I, I feel obliged to, you know, to, uh, to <laughs> reinforce agree. him. You know, really. there, there are two big gaps we have. One is, is uh, we haven't heard from Tom Pickering. Uh, and secondly, Tom recently was in Israel. Um, and so we haven't heard how the Israelis are viewing this. Tom, would you contribute to this? We've got to... Tom just led a, a delegation from the Iran Project to Israel uh, to talk about how they see things. Uh, this is the second time Tom's done this over the last year and a half. Yeah, thank you, Bill. And I will try to attempt uh, an Ali Vayas for you. 
uh, the kind of one-sentence summary. Uh, much less, put it this way, deeply dug in against the agreement than we saw a year and a half ago. But even then, a year and a half ago, almost all conversations with Israelis began, this is what the Prime Minister thinks, now let me tell you what you have to get in the agreement. And what the Prime Minister thought was no agreement. So it was a sense that the Israelis were thinking this through on their own and working hard to assure that the agreement was as good as we could make it in that sense. The second is that there is a real preoccupation in Israel beyond what I think is the sensible strategic evaluation with Iran as the major enemy, ISIS creeping up but not yet there, in large measure based on two things. One, the prime minister's overworking of this particular issue in public has generated uh, not unanimity by any means, but a large amount of public opinion uh, worried to death about Iran and nuclear weapons. And on the other hand, a good bit of serious concern, particularly with the Iranian work uh, through Hezbollah and the Revolutionary Guard in Syria, uh, with a danger that has moved closer to Israel's frontier and, and quite concerned about that. And I would say those are the kind of uh, big bottom lines. Uh, one can go beyond that into extensive discussions that would take a whole panel and drive us all crazy. But my, my sense is those are the things that are on their mind. The end result of that, I think, was the message we received without total conviction, but pretty genuinely clear, was that there is much more interest now in the MOU than there is in undermining Explain and to trying to destroy is. the agreement. The Memorandum of Understanding is a regular process the U.S. and Israel go through to plan the next to five to ten years of military assistance and general assistance to Israel. And they're very interested, obviously, in what's going to be the figure for that ten-year program and what's going to be included in it. A final point, I guess, is apparently the preoccupation in the MOU is not with military equipment that makes a major, makes major strategic sense in dealing with Iran and the nuclear program, much more with the local difficulties that Israel is expected to face in the region over the next 10 years. So there, there is a balance in this, interestingly enough, uh, that reflects reality. A little bit like Winston Churchill once said about the United States, after doing and thinking everything worse, they come up with the right answer. And some of that, I think, is now taking place uh, among Israelis, at least, that we had an opportunity and a privilege to speak Thanks, to. Thanks, Tom. You know, I, we met last week in New York with the only member of the Knesset that sort of felt that um, this might not be the worst thing for Israel, uh, that the agreement, but nobody else on the Knesset favored this agreement or would announce that they were favored. And that strikes me as being certainly different than our Congress <laughs> and a little bit surprising that there's nobody who's prepared to declare themselves.
Yeah, there's a little bit of a triumph of what I would call uh, ideology over reality about a lot of this. Okay. All right, now, uh, questions? Yes. Trudy, you want to do it again? Okay, it's working. Trudy Rubin, the Philadelphia Inquirer. A, a couple of questions. Uh, first, uh, there are a lot of voices in Washington that's, that are saying that uh, there needs to be a clearer statement by the president that if in the future, as this accord winds down, um, uh, there should be any indication that Iran wants a nuclear weapon, it would be met by force, that he should specify this now. Uh, do you think that would be wise? And the second question is, I'd like to ask Ali, um, could you say something about why you think Jason Rezian and, uh, is still being held and Siamak Namazi was arrested? And does this mean we're likely to see more arrests like this uh, in an attempt to uh, sow fear, discourage uh, Iranian-American investors, or generally try to undermine the accord. Okay. Who wants to answer the first question? I'll take the first one. Um, I think that such a statement um, be, uh, uh, such a statement that people want President Obama to make would not be helpful. Um, the fact is, is that I think it's a given uh, if there is a blatant and egregious violation on Iran's part. For example, in an earlier panel, uh, there are degrees of violations. Uh, but let's say Iran was caught red-handed cheating, to use that word, uh, with a clandestine program, which I think uh, some panelists earlier made a clear uh, and very persuasive argument that that would be totally illogical, but let's say that that happens. Um, there's, there's no question that all options would be on the table. Um, I just think it's a matter of bad policy for any president to um, draw a red line like that that would box him in, limit his options. Um, I've been very critical of the red line that President Obama drew on Assad in Syria. And I think saying, uh, what was it, four and a half years now, five years mm -hmm. ago, that Assad must go, well, I think the president he's agrees still with there. You on that. <laughs> and here we come along, and those red lines turn pink, and suddenly mm -hmm. they vanish. So if I was an advisor to the president, I would strongly suggest him here, not here. to make such a statement. Here, here. Ali? And I, I will just add to what Suzanne said, that you have to think about the utility of the threat of force, right? Uh, the Iranians, uh, uh, I think they very well know the risks, and that's why even under President Ahmadinejad, they installed 3,000 centrifuges in Fordow, but never turned on more than one-third of them. Uh, they enriched uranium to 20%, but remained well below uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's red line, because they, I think, have a realistic threat assessment, which it doesn't necessarily change with uh, uh, strong statements. Um, for your second question, look, the arrest of Iranian-Americans is a multi-purpose thing, I would say. Uh, on the one hand, it, 
these people, unfortunately, are pawns in the game uh, and the rivalry between Iran and the United States. Uh, they are used uh, as a way uh, for those who don't like to see any additional improvements in the relationship uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, there are also proof for paranoia. Uh, you know, when uh, the leader of the country comes out and warns against uh, infiltrators that want to come in and influence the system, and now that the United States has not been able to coerce Iran economically, uh, subverse it in other means, then some of the security intelligence uh, establishment will have to find proof for that. Right? And uh, unfortunately, these people fit the profile. Um, there is also uh, some economic interest behind it, uh, especially in the case of Siamak Namazi, uh, who was not involved in uh, anything related uh, to economic activities uh, in Iran for the past decade, but before that he was. And I think there were probably some concerns uh, from the side of those vested interests that I mentioned that he uh, is coming back to revive those activities, and they saw him as competitor. Because you have to remember, it's not only that some of these forces want to hinder Iran's reintegration in the global economy, but some of them want to make sure that if it happens, they're the principal beneficiary of it. Uh, and Siamak uh, was seen, at least, as a competitor. Um, you know, but, but here, another point that matters is also who is doing this, because we, again, we have a record, we have a pattern, and in the past it used to be either the Ministry of Intelligence or the Judiciary, um, and uh, they used to play by the rules. So most Iranian Americans that were arrested were released in less than 150 days. Uh, but here we're dealing with the intelligence branch of the Revolutionary Guards that does not play by the rules, and that's why Siamak has been in prison uh, for more than 500, year, 500 days now. Oh, sorry, Jason. Yes, sir. Back there. Uh, thank you. It's uh, Dana Marshall, Transnational Strategy Group. The question uh, is to, um, goes to the question of the motivation of the hardliners in Iran. I wonder if the panel could maybe answer two related questions. One is, to what extent is the, their opposition ideological or, shall we say, non-economic? And to what extent is it an economic? And to the extent that these are economic concerns, forgive me for using it in maybe an indelicate term, but can they be bought off in some way to get them, sort of fix them, give them what they need economically, sort of get them out of the way, quiet them down, and then maybe be able to deal with less of an opposition? Well, Ali, you want to take that? Um, it's actually quite interesting because President Rouhani initially, uh, in the first year uh, of negotiations, 2013 and even 2014, he had a very strong line against those who he called merchants of sanctions, uh, basically people who benefited from sanctions. And he was uh, basically uh, trying to name them and shame them and push them back uh, by saying that you have to find a new occupation for yourself because the country, we're going to have this deal and the economy is going to open up. Uh, but quite interestingly, this year, his, uh, he has changed his message and he's uh, been saying increasingly that uh, this deal is not coming at the expense of anyone. And there are opportunities for everyone. This is not 
the size of the uh, slice of pie diminishing for one group or one faction, the whole pie is increasing in size and everybody will be able to benefit from it. Um, but, um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there are, the Iranian power system is designed in a way that uh, no single faction can control the system and there's always competition. Um, but, um, and, and some of these organizations like the Revolutionary Guards have means, one of them is arrests, one of them uh, for example, is uh, the, what happened when the main international airport in Tehran was being inaugurated by the Turks. Revolutionary guards uh, sent tanks on the tarmac uh, and took over the management of the airports. You know, so they, they, there are means that they can use in order to make sure that their economic interest is preserved. Uh, but there's also ideological uh, interest uh, and, and fears, as I mentioned, of a rapid uh, opening of the country that might go too fast or too far um, and an economic opening that could lead also to a political opening. That's, that's what is seen as threatening. Uh, but I can't tell you which motivation is stronger. I think it's a mix of both. Okay. Uh, do you have Just briefly, I, I asked a similar question to a well-placed Iranian and his response was, yes, we're going to have to grease the palms of certain people. And, um, you know, I think uh, I also work on another country that recently went through uh, lifting of sanctions, Myanmar. And what we see there is uh, a similar situation, a very corrupt uh, system where the military junta benefited uh, uh, with the sanctions. And now they have rehab for cronies. Who knew? It existed, but it does. And uh, maybe something similar could be established in Iran. Okay. Yes. Well, let me. Okay, I'm sorry, Barbara. <laughs> Never want to pass up Barbara. <laughs> Thanks, Barbara Slavin. Thank you all for coming. This is terrific. Um, Ambassador Rowe, I want you to put on your European Union hat for a minute. Um, although the U.S. is restricted in its bilateral context, supposedly with Iran, I'm not that sure. How, how true that is. The EU has resumed a dialogue, uh, Federica Mogherini and so on. If you could talk a little bit about how that dialogue is being uh, pursued, uh, that would be quite interesting. And then also, if I may kind of use my previous moderator prerogative and ask Ken Katzman to clarify an issue that was brought up earlier, and that's whether American states can interfere with the sanctions relief. I think that would be very important. Thanks. Actually, I have several points to make, if you allow me. Um, first, I, I want to go back to what I, uh, Susan said. Uh, the implementation of the agreement will be bumpy. You know, I have the personal experience of the implementation of disarmament agreements. It's always complicated. We have 159 pages at each, at each steps. You know, you can have different interpretation of very technical details, which have actually far-reaching consequences. So it will be bumpy. And that's very important that we have a committee where we have the majority and uh, that where we are going to take the decisions. But it means also that we don't have to dramatize any problems that we are going to face because there will be problems down the road. The second point, in geopolitical terms, I think it's very important also to realize that the problem is that there is a strategic unbalance in this part of the world. 
after the, the disastrous invasion of Iraq, uh, uh, the fact is now that there is an imbalance that there is one great power in the region, which is Iran. You know, it's basically there is Iran. The balance which was before, because here it's not a question of Islamic Republic, it's Iran, we are talking of countries. You know, you had Iraq and Egypt, which were the balancer of the balancers of the region. Iraq has been stupidly destroyed. And as for Egypt, Egypt is in the middle of a political crisis. So there is no balance of power right now, which explains the concerns of the Arab, the Arab uh, Gulf countries. So we need a balancer. And I do think that we have to be the balancer in this part of the world. It's not being anti-Iranian. It's simply looking at the geopolitics of the region. A region which is unbalanced is a dangerous region. And that's the fact. It could lead some, some reckless reaction of some states. Going to your question <laughs> now. Uh, when you say we need to yes. I think the, the, at least the Western, the Western countries, and of course, including the, including the, 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 the EU. You know, my country has, you know, has, has, has felt that he had, now we have a military basis in Abu Dhabi, now we are deploying an aircraft carrier in the region. You know, it's really because we realize that there is a, 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 a geopolitical problem. And again, which is not linked to the nature of the regime in Tehran. It will be the Shah or, or, or democracy. In a sense, it will be the same, uh, more or less the same. The methods will be different, but the reality will be the same. Um, the, the, to go to the, your point, actually, the, the, the trade relationship with Iran will be quite difficult. Because I have emphasized the problem of the banks. Uh, I have emphasized, but we have also to emphasize now uh, the problem of the US sanctions. For instance, uh, the, 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 the European uh, um, companies won't be able to use the dollar. The U European companies won't be uh, uh, you know, allowed to have relationship with the Revolutionary Guards the, because they are under sanctions uh, by the US. The Revolutionary Guards are controlling 60% of the Iranian uh, economy. So I, I really want to insist on the fact that you know, the implementation of the joint, the, 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 the joint program on our side, I think the, not only because of the visa waiver, the Iranians will, will reach the conclusion or will say, what, you know, what can we do? You know, try to imagine, you know, for instance, the, a French company was providing 30% of the cars in Iran. If this company wants to come back, basically there is no bank ready to, to work with it. There is no bank, because the banks are terrified by the US sanctions, terrified by the New York district attorney. So really, and, and so on. So there will be, it's, it's a, real, a real problem. And of course, you can say, oh, you are protecting the greedy uh, 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 French uh, corporations. But really, simply, the, 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 what we are supposed to give on our side to the, to the Iranians is a, a, a trade re, a sanctions relief and reestablishment of, of, the, of the trade. So as for our relationship with, 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 with Iran, you know, for the moment, you know, it's, it's the first contact. What we do understand on the Iranian side, they are very keen on this aspect, which means the relief of sanctions. They are really keen on having trade relationship uh, uh, with the West. You know, when I was the French negotiator on this issue, I went to Tehran several times. And, and what was very striking 
was that because of the sanctions, because of the inept management of the economy by the regime, and now because of the collapse of the oil prices, the, the country is really suffering in economic terms. 70 millions of inhabitants, you know, they are, they are the major importer, the, the first importer of refined products in the world. You know, they have not built a refinery since 1979. So there is a real, real economic constraint. And the regime, in a sense, needs to show to its population that the, the, the policy is, is, is paying. I think nothing special, you know, really. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very preliminary, the first contact. Do we really, this, this, yes, it has not really quickly, started at the level Ken, of the... Ken. Uh, Ken. Thank, thank you. I spoke earlier. Um, there was a question about state versus federal authority uh, before. Um, <clears throat> our understanding at CRS is that basically the federal government uh, position with the states is that the states can divest. In other words, state pension funds, they have the authority to sell stocks, investments in companies that are doing business with Iran that might be in violation of sanctions, those companies, the European companies, your Asian companies. What the states cannot do is anything really beyond that. In other words, North Carolina cannot say we are banning the importation of Iranian products, or Texas can't say we forbid companies based in Texas from contracting with companies that may be doing business with Iran. So there has been a division of responsibilities worked out, and the states really are, are limited to this divestment of uh, assets of companies that may be doing business okay. with Iran. Thank, Thank you. you. Ken. Uh, we got a couple more questions. Then did you you no one back there? You, you, yeah, the, waving your hand. No, the one just behind you. I'm sorry. Okay. He was waving his hand much higher than you were. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Gerald Chandler of uh, iTech Consultants. Uh, on an earlier panel, and several times we heard uh, the claim that uh, sanctions did not influence Iran. I'd like to get each of your uh, opinions. Was it a good idea to have sanctions, or was it counterproductive to have them? We don't have time for each of them to answer, but I, Frank, you want to answer? Well, that? I, I think you've heard two, two arguments today, and both of them have merit. Uh, we believe that sanctions provided the cutting edge that brought Iran to the table, and that satisfied a political imperative. And the Iranians argue that sanctions produced their counterthrust that brought us to the table. Uh, I, if you ask me where I come out, I think the sanctions certainly put huge pressure on Iran. But at the same time, I'm, I believe there are distinct limits as to how far sanctions could have carried the day. Could sanctions have brought the Iranian regime to accept any form of nuclear understanding? There we would have been on extremely dangerous ground. Could sanctions have brought Iran to a different political, domestic political outcome? I have the gravest doubts about that. I think we're probably very lucky we'll not know the exact answer between those two balancing principles. I thought he was headed toward the typical diplomatic answer. Everybody's right. <laughs> anyway, okay. Just a quick response to that and with 
all due respect to my friend Hossein Musavian, if he's still here, I do think sanctions did play a role, but they were not the only factor. Uh, I think during the um, uh, secret negotiations that preceded uh, the um, outward negotiations, the administration relayed two very important points to the Iranian negotiators that I think tipped the balance. First was uh, they somehow got across the message that the United States was no longer after regime change. That was number one. The second was that the United States, if we went forward with this deal, would allow Iran to have a um, limited, highly um, uh, monitored, but nonetheless uh, uh, enrichment program on their soil. And I think those two um, uh, points that were relayed to the Iranians made it possible for them to engage in these negotiations. No, the second point, I disagree, <laughs> because okay. I have been the French negotiator, and we have, you know, the Iranians have known for years that there will be a limited enrichment capability in Iran. You know, really, it was, the fact was that so far, the Iranians simply didn't want to negotiate. They didn't enter the negotiation. I spent three years listening hundreds of hours of the Iranians. They didn't say, what you're offering is not enough. It's simply they didn't enter the negotiation. And, and every, we, we are negotiating on the, the assumption that there will be a limited enrichment capability. You know, really, the question was 500 or 5,000. Uh, on the French side, we are more on the former than the later. Uh, but we, we, we knew it. No, the question, really, there, there was a, a, a turning point. The Iranians decided to negotiate. That was in 2013. They, they said, OK, we, uh, for any reason, I think the sanctions were critical. They said, we have to, go to, to, to negotiate. It's really, and, and it's not what the Americans said was really, it's not because the Americans said we are not for regime change that really people are going to believe it or not to believe it. It's simply the Iranians felt obliged to negotiate. And, and fortunately, there was an American administration ready to negotiate uh, uh, with them on accept, acceptable terms. Okay. Just one more question, then I'll ask each of you to reply. Okay. Thank you, Nelson Cunningham at McClarty Associates. Uh, we're seeing right now the opening of two long frozen relationships, one with Cuba and one with Iran. And there's one, there are some differences I think that are quite startling between them. Uh, in September, we saw the congressional vote on the Iran JCPOA, and there was not a single Republican that voted in favor of the president's position to open the relationship. Uh, the month before, I traveled down to Cuba with Secretary Kerry to raise the American flag over the embassy in Havana, and there, was, uh, there were a number of Republican senators and congressmen who traveled with the president, who traveled with Secretary Kerry in support of this, and there's obviously, there's divided views on the Republican side on this, with many supporting an opening. Uh, I think one major difference is that the American business community, by and large, has decided they wish to change the relationship with Cuba for economic reasons. The Chamber of Commerce had a major delegation down, headed by uh, Carlos Gutierrez, the Bush's Secretary of Commerce. Uh, they're putting a major push to change the economic sanctions regime against Cuba. Uh, meanwhile, they have been absolutely, and I think that's been uh, vital in getting Republican, some Republican support for the opening in Cuba. Meanwhile, on Iran, the business community has been absolutely silent. Uh, the Chamber of yep. Commerce has not, has not taken a position, and I wonder whether that, uh, that lack of business engagement 
is one of the reasons why we have a more politically frozen situation, seemingly, on Iran uh, than we do in Cuba, and whether, and yes, whether we will a, see a change. It's a good question. You know, I, I've got a, also a very long relationship with Cuba. Um, and um, uh, one of the differences is that Cuba is a country of 10 million people, and yes, Iran is 80 million people. Languages are diff so far different. Uh, the culture is different. They're so far away. But never mind the fact that since 79, we really haven't had any communications with them. And American business has not been there. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why it's different. Um, but on the Republican issue, um, and this is not a political panel, but the fact is no Republican voted for this. And it was the line of the Republican Party with regard to Barack Obama and the next elections. And they, we spent a lot of time talking to uh, members of, the, of both houses. And um, there was just a political block on this issue. What individuals thought privately, whether they thought this was a good idea or not, I don't know. But I don't think the lack of American business interest so much as the lack of American uh, readiness to be interested because of these 35 years of cutting off. Uh, not to cut you off, but I, I think you could debate the relative balance between Cuba and, and, and uh, Iran, as, as, as Ken did. Uh, um, let, me, let me say one thing, and then I'm going to ask each of the panels to comment, and then we can close the panel. Um, with all the negative things that have been said today, many people giving serious evaluations, in my 60 years of dealing with diplomacy, I believe this was the most impressive process of negotiating a good agreement that I have experienced. The number of countries involved, the number of technical and political issues involved, um, the lack of communications that had existed uh, up until this whole negotiation began, there's really nothing quite as impressive as a, as a diplomatic effort um, as this. And, and I, I guess I would hold to that, um, that we should be happy, proud, and uh, um, comforted comforted by the fact that we have these six governments, uh, we had our own president and our own secretary of state, who achieved a, an agreement that is, uh, I don't think any of us thought was possible uh, five years ago, never mind two years ago, um, in which both sides, all sides got what they thought was essential. Nobody got everything they wanted. But what they got was a mutual accord on let's try to work out a really transformation of how uh, what Iran's role is, is in the region and, and how it relates to not only nuclear, but to uh, power in the region. There are going to be problems. But we're in a whole new era uh, with regard to the Middle East. Uh, as Frank and, and the French ambassador said, that this is this is a this is the really the major power in the region now, 
And we have to be serious about that relationship. I am personally delighted that we are where we are, rather than where we were last year, or never mind seven years ago. Um, and think we have, if we think about this as, as, a, as one of the great opportunities diplomatically for the United States and for Europe in the region, uh, always keeping in mind the concerns that have been expressed here very well today, um, I think looking forward, this is a positive opportunity that we have to make work. We simply have to make it work. So having said that, uh, maybe each of you could comment either on what I said or what you thought I should have said. Okay. <laughs> Ambassador? No, I think we have, uh, I think it was a positive step for the settlement of the nuclear issue of Iran, but we have not started to solve the real issue now, uh, which is the Syrian crisis. The Syrian crisis, I understand from an American point of view, the core elements, the core interests of the U.S. are not at stake, but the Syrian crisis is destabilizing Europe in a very critical way. It's a critical threat against your main and more solid allies in terms of terrorism, in terms of crisis of migrants. So there is a, an extreme urgency now. I really beg our American friends to consider that there is an extreme urgency to solve uh, uh, the, the Syrian crisis. And in this crisis, I'm not sure that Iran will be very helpful. Good point. Thank you, Ambassador. Well, Ali? I agree, Bill, with everything you said. Uh, oh, well, that's, and <laughs> we'll just quit there. <laughs> yeah, I can just stop there. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, and I will just add, despite the gloomy image that I depicted of domestic politics in Iran, I still think the deal was definitely worth it. Uh, the non-proliferation value of the deal is very important. Uh, no one can uh, overlook that in any way. This deal turns Iran from the most sanctioned country in the world to the most monitored country in the world. And the verification Good mechanism point. that we have uh, is really unprecedented. And as Jim Walsh uh, always says, it's even better than the MPT. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, a very important achievement. Uh, but in terms of regional consequences, I think we have to be uh, uh, patient uh, and have a realistic view of what this means. This does not significantly change the balance of power uh, in the region. Uh, and threat perception of key stakeholders. It provides an opportunity for a better uh, understanding through engagement, which we already see through the Syria uh, talks, uh, the Vienna process, and now New York talks. Uh, and I think there is potential there. It's not going to be easy, but there is potential. Uh, and even when it gets to domestic Iranian politics, we have to have a longer vision. And Iran, 10 years from now, which with 7 8% growth every year, will produce a society that will be in a much better place for a transition to something better than if there was no deal, Iran had remained under sanction or had been attacked. Thank you, Ali. Bill, um, you won't be surprised that I'm going to um, take your side of this argument oh. as well. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to start it just a slightly different way. I'm, if I look back over the past 20 years, I think the central problem of American foreign policy, in fact, looking beyond American foreign policy to the way all of us have looked at the world since 1989 and the end of the Cold War, is how will the system of power in the world be adjusted? When the Cold War ended, 
and the bifurcation of power ceased, was the United States going to inherit a dominant position? How was, how was, how, how was power to be allocated? And I think we've lived through a period, certainly from our perspective of exaggerated expectations of what we could believe was possible through the use of American power. And we went down the road in some pretty disastrous undertakings, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan being classic examples. But I believe we've begun to readjust our sights and recognize that the United States, to survive and protect its core national interests, will have to share. To me, the genius of the Iran deal was it is a classic case of major nations sitting around the table and finding a balance among themselves and engaging a serious other power. I do not remember a time in my lifetime when Russia, China, the United States, Europe ever sat down and looked at a hard foreign policy problem, nuclear, a nuclear issue with a Middle Eastern power, and came to a common menu and then put that into effect. The very fact that we could do that said a lot about each one of us. And I'd like to think it begins to say how we could deal with other major problems. It isn't going to be easy. You're not going to be able to spin these off like Xerox paper. But it does mean that there is an adjustment of decision making on the international scale. And this was a darn good example. Master said that we have to balance Iran in the Middle East. By we, he meant, I think, Europe and the United States. I, How do you feel about that? I, I, I mean, I didn't question the ambassador out of terrific respect for his knowledge of the region, well, but I, I would argue, <laughs> I'd, I'd argue, I'd argue just, uh, argue just a little bit differently. I, you know, I think the question of balance is often in the eyes of a beholder. If you sat down today with the Iranians, you'd find out a very interesting, uh, slightly different perception, and that is they believe they have stretched to their limits and that the Saudis are hammering them on their margins. Uh, the Saudis are heavily committed in Yemen. Uh, the Saudis uh, are taxing them hard on the Iraqi front. Uh, Syria is a classic example. One of the real reasons I think we can hope is that most nations in the region have reached reach their sort of high water marks, at least for the moment, gives us some hope. Um, so balance, getting back to reaching a balance is, in my mind, possible. And we can come in, when I say we, I mean Europe and the United States, without having to do anything grossly extraordinary and come in on the margin to make the difference. Uh, it doesn't mean having to take major new commitments to create that sense of, of balance in the system. Good. Suzanne, thank you Forgive so much. Me. Good. Ambassador. 
we have would you, to would reassure you like to our partners. partners. Pardon? We have to reassure our partners. Uh -huh. There's no question. Absolutely. Well, Bill, you're going to be completely surprised that I agree with you, every single word that you said. Um, but more than that, I, you know, this was a monumental agreement. And uh, it's a strong nonproliferation agreement negotiated under the toughest circumstances. So there's no question. But uh, going back to the gloom and doom, what really depresses me depresses the hell out of me, actually, is that not a single presidential candidate on either side has had the um, mental fortitude, imagination, vision, leadership to state, uh, even reticently, how this agreement could be an opportunity for changing uh, the relationship with Iran or putting it within the context of a broader strategy for the U.S. in addressing the multitude of problems where Iran plays a role in the Middle East. Um, and I understand this is how political campaigns go. You have to be out-tough each other on Iran. But I really think we need to expect more from our political candidates. And uh, I'm not optimistic that we'll hear any vision or grand vision or even sensible policy when it comes to Iran, but I'm still holding out hope. Well, good. I, I, I would like to just comment that uh, those same political leaders, not one of them have pointed out how significant and important it is for, the, for humanity that the Paris Agreement was reached on climate change. Um, <laughs> and I'd ask Tom, what do all those people know that we don't, and that 195 countries don't know? Uh, why are not, they not notice, noticing that somehow uh, we've just had a tremendous change of policies in the world? But uh, that's not Iran. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for coming, and thanks to the panel. I mean, really, what a wonderful group of people who know so much about these issues, and they were so so wise, and, and I hope you felt satisfied with the day. Thank you, Thank you everyone.